Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the Mark Twain Annual, number 2, 2004, and is published by the Penn State University Press. The title of this article is The Widow's Son, Masonic Parody in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, by Randall A. Clack. In his essay, Mark Twain and Freemasonry, Alexander Jones observes that from the years 1861 to 1869, Samuel L. Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, was a member of the ancient, free, and accepted order of Masons, Polar Star Lodge No. 79 of St. Louis. According to the records of the Polar Star Lodge, Twain was initiated and entered apprentice Mason on May 22, 1861, passed to the Fellowcraft degree on June 12, and raised to Master Mason on July 10. Jones surmises that Twain's application to Masonic studies could scarcely have been more diligent if he had nursed the ambition of becoming the worshipful master of the Polar Star Lodge at the earliest possible date. While Twain allowed his affiliation with the Polar Star Lodge to lapse after he departed St. Louis for Nevada and Points West, he petitioned for reinstatement on April 21, 1867, two months before departing on the Quaker City for Europe and the Near East. During the year of the Innocents Abroad publication, 1869, and shortly after becoming engaged to Olivia Langdon, Twain requested a demit from the Polar Star Lodge. In his study, Jones notes Twain's references in Innocents Abroad to the legendary Masonic figures of Solomon, King Hiram of Tyre, and Godfrey de Bouillon. Jones also identifies Twain's references in Innocents Abroad to Masonic Lodge rituals, specifically part of the initiation ritual for the Fellowcraft degree as it appears in the Sea of Galilee section, and the Masonic service at the grave as it appears in Twain's meditation on Adam's grave. While this information might seem like a footnote in Twain's studies, 16 years after publishing Innocents Abroad, Twain found further use for the esoterica that he had absorbed during his Masonic studies. While writing Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, I contend that Twain drew upon the philosophy of the secret society and the symbolism of its initiatory rituals to create an intentional parody of the Brotherhood of Freemasonry. The book opens with an admonishment from G.G., Chief of Ordnance, a mysterious figure who recalls the Masonic Tyler, the sentry, sergeant-at-arms, and enforcer of the Masonic Lodge. According to John J. Robinson, the Masonic figure of the Tyler screens visitors for credentials, secures the meeting place, and then stands guard outside the door with a drawn sword in his hand. The initials GG also evoke the mystical letter G that, according to Masonic legend, stands for the universal architect or god, and was found tattooed on the breast of Hiram Abiff, King Solomon's master builder, when his body was discovered in a makeshift grave. Two amusing references to Freemasonry involve Tom Sawyer, the blood oath of Tom Sawyer's gang, and the symbols that Tom paints on the Phelps doors. In Chapter 2, Huck describes the oath of Tom's gang. 
It swore every boy to stick to the band and never tell any of the secrets. And if anybody done anything to any boy in the band, whichever boy was ordered to kill that person and his family must do it. And he mustn't sleep till he had killed them and hacked a cross in their breasts, which was the sign of the band. And if anybody that belonged to the band told the secrets, he must have his throat cut and then have his carcass burnt up and the ashes scattered all around. The bloodiest section of the gang's oath are especially interesting in light of the penalty oaths of the first three Masonic degrees. During the oath for entered apprentice, the initiate binds himself under no less a penalty than that of having his throat cut across. And in the oath for fellow craft mason, the initiate binds himself under no less a penalty than that of having his breast torn open, his heart plucked out and placed on the highest pinnacle of the temple. Finally, during the oath for Master Mason, the initiate binds himself under no less a penalty than to have his body severed in twain and divided to the north and south, bowels burnt to ashes in the center, and the ashes scattered to the four winds of heaven. The similarities between the Sawyer's gang's oath and those of the Freemasons are striking, and while Tom attributes his sources to pirate books and robber books, perhaps a more appropriate attribution would be to the worshipful master of the Masonic Lodge, who tells each initiate to the degree of Master Mason that the degree will make him a brother to pirates and corsairs. So here I'm going to take an editorial section and talk about the fact that just because this is written here and it's a scholarly article does not mean that that's what's going to happen or what you're going to hear in the three degrees of masonry in California. So I will tell you without getting into specifics that that's not exactly what happens in California, um, especially the part about being made brother to pirates and corsairs. There is nothing like that that is said in our ritual. So with that editorial comment, now back to the article. In chapter 39, Tom, in an effort to increase the danger, and hence the fun of Jim's evasion, not only sends Silas Phelps a warning letter, but drawed in blood a skull and crossbones on the front door, and the next night another one of a coffin on the back door. During the initiation rites of the degree of Master Mason, the candidate is told that coffin, death head, and marrow bones are emblematical of the death and burial of our Grand Master Hiram Abiff, and are worthy of our serious attention. While these symbols might be worth the Masonic initiate's serious attention, Tom seems only interested in their potential to evoke terror in Silas and Sally Phelps. Twain, however, uses Tom in these scenes to evoke the figure of the Masonic Grand Master. While the previous references to Freemasonry may have been intended to amuse or draw the attention of fellow Masons, perhaps Twain's most compelling reference to Freemasonry occurs in the second paragraph of Huckleberry Finn. For the degree of Master Mason, Twain's highest rank as a Freemason, the initiate is given the grand hailing sign of distress. For those times when the Master Mason is out of sight of possible help, or in the dark, he is taught to summon assistance with the words, O Lord, my God, is there no help for the son of the widow? According to Masonic tradition, the son of the widow is an appellation for Solomon's master worker and builder of his temple, Hiram Abiff, who, according to Masonic legend, was murdered by three of his workers. According to Robinson, every master was the widow's son. He was the continuation of the master line that had apparently been broken with the death of the first grandmaster, Hiram Abiff. The son of the widow in Huckleberry Finn, this phrase could only evoke one character, Huck Finn, the ward or figurative son of the widow Douglas. As Huck tells the reader, the widow Douglas, she took me for her son and allowed she would civilize me. 
The Masonic tradition also equates the son of the widow with Orphan, the legend Hiram and Young, 1718. And Huck refers to himself as an orphan three specific times during the story. In chapter 11, where Huck tells Judith Loftus that both his father and mother was dead. In chapter 17, where Huck tells Buck Grangerford that he is all alone in the world. And in chapter 20, where Huck tells the Duke and the Dauphin that his folk are dead. Finally, at the end of the book, Huck discovers that he is indeed an orphan. If Huck was intended to suggest a Masonic initiate, it would explain Twain's continued use of Masonic references throughout the story. For example, at the beginning of the initiation rite for the first degree, the blindfolded initiate is referred to as a poor blind candidate, one who cannot see clearly, or one in darkness. During the initiation rites for the first three Masonic degrees, the initiate is asked, from whence come you and whither are you traveling? The reply, given for the initiate by the senior deacon during the entered apprentice rite, is from the west and traveling to the east in search of light. And later, during the rites for Fellowcraft and Master Mason, in search of more light. According to J.E. Surlot, light is the manifestation of morality, of the intellect, and the seven virtues. Symbolically, illumination comes from the east. Psychologically speaking, to become illuminated is to become aware of a source of light and of spiritual strength. During the Masonic initiations, the initiate is said to travel from darkness to light, from ignorance or confusion to knowledge or understanding. Twain constructed his story so that the search for light or wisdom is a primary theme in the book, and Huck, like the Masonic initiate, can be viewed as symbolically in search of illumination or wisdom during his journey with Jim. Traveling from west to east, from St. Petersburg, Missouri toward Cairo, Illinois, Huck and Jim miss the lights of freedom in the fog. Huck, however, discovers another light, symbolically locating what Freemasons call the light of brotherhood in his own heart at the end of chapter 15. Huck humbles himself to Jim for playing a trick on him, and later protects Jim from slave hunters in chapter 16. Additionally, Huck's actions in chapter 16 suggest a primary tenet of Freemasonry. No Mason should reveal the secrets of a brother that may deprive him of his life and property. In the ritual of the entered apprentice, the candidate is told, You should listen to the cries of a worthy distressed brother. You should be faithful and keep and conceal those secrets of a brother when given to you in charge as such, that they may remain as secure and inviolable in your breast as his own before communicated to you. Do good unto all. Reminiscent of the widow Douglas's instructions to Huck to help other people and do everything for other people, this Masonic admonition is the foundation for the relationship between Huck and Jim. While Huck previously gives his word on Jackson's Island that he will keep Jim's secret, in chapter 16, The Slave Hunters, and 31, Huck's letter to Miss Watson, Huck's bond is tested. Huck does indeed keep his word to Jim. Curiously enough, this theme is underscored a second time near the end of Twain's story in chapter 40, when Jim disregards his own safety and freedom and remains with Tom after he is shot during the evasion. By their actions, both Huck and Jim figuratively demonstrate the three virtues or three precious jewels of masonry referred to in the rite of Master Mason as humanity, friendship, and brotherly love. Writing in 1854, Augustus C. L. Arnold noted in his seminal study of Freemasonry, in the Philosophical History of Freemasonry, that when society and government are oppressive or imperfect, when they are not in harmony with the moral, spiritual, and physical needs and conditions of men, the earnest, the loving, the hoping, the wise become disgusted with the outward life of society and seek consolation and support in secret association.
Furthermore, Manly P. Hall maintains that in Masonic philosophy, Hiram's three murderers represent the state's ignorance, the church's superstition, and society's fear. But Hiram represents the higher nature of man, right thinking, right feeling, and right action. As readers know, Huck rejects the laws of the state regarding runaway slaves and property. He rejects the morals and superstitions of the church from the Ten Commandments regarding lying and stealing. And he rejects the hypocrisy and ignorance of society in the mob that fails to follow its own laws and moral dictates. Conversely, Huck's actions towards Jim suggest the Masonic virtues of love, faith, and wisdom. The virtue that Huck demonstrates transcends the laws, rules, and beliefs of a society. Moreover, like Hiram Abiff, Huck represents the higher nature of man, according to Robinson. What the Masonic allegory of Hiram Abiff suggests was lost was the architect, the planner who was needed to finish the temple and provide the leadership to move forward. The man being initiated as a master by acting out the murder is being turned into another Hiram. Every master takes that role and becomes Hiram. He is the son of the widow, and it is his task to replace that which was lost, the leadership, the direction, the work required to finish the building of the order of the temple. As Hall notes, Hiram symbolizes that ideal state of spiritual, intellectual, and physical emancipation. The story would suggest that Twain intended Huck to embody the virtues of the Master Mason. In addition to Huck's embodying the primary Masonic virtues, there is also an interesting correspondence between the plot structure of Twain's story and the initiation rites connected with the first three Masonic degrees. According to Robinson, during the rite for each Masonic degree, the initiate undergoes a symbolic confrontation that corresponds to an assault from one of Hiram Abiff's three murderers. This ritual confrontation also corresponds to the penalty oaths of each degree. These three initiatory deaths associated with the Masonic degrees correspond to three moments of transition for Huck during Twain's story. The first of Huck's transitions occurs during the pig scene when Huck shoots a wild pig and then cuts its throat so the pig's blood will cover Pap's cabin. While the pig scene underscores Huck's intention to depart Hannibal and begin a new life, this fake or symbolic death corresponds to both the first assault on Hiram Abiff when he is struck on the throat and to the entered apprentice's penalty oath of having the initiate's throat cut if he betrays another mason. The second moment of transition that Huck undergoes corresponds to both the second assault on Hiram Abiff when Solomon's chief builder is struck on the chest and to the Masonic initiate's penalty oath of having his chest cut open. While Huck does not literally have his heart removed, he does experience a symbolic change of heart in chapter 31. As Huck notes, And I made up my mind to pray, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they? It weren't no use to try and hide it from him. It was because my heart weren't right, and it was because I weren't square. Twain's use of the word square suggests both straightforward or honest, and the Masonic symbol of the right angle that is given to initiates as a symbol of morality, and to remind them to act upon the square with all mankind. Figuratively, Huck experiences a change of heart as he goes against the white, middle-class morality and proclaims, All right then, I'll go to hell, and then he tears up the letter he has written to Miss Watson. This would appear to be a symbolic death from which Huck has resurrected through his friendship with Jim into what Freemasons refer to as brotherhood. In other words, Huck is now square. Twain further underscores the idea of Huck undergoing a symbolic resurrection when in chapter 33, Huck realizes that the Phelps have mistaken him for Tom Sawyer. 
Huck says, but if they was joyful, it weren't nothing to what I was, for it was like being born again. I was so glad to find out who I was. Likewise, in the Master Mason ceremony, the candidate is told about the symbolic death and resurrection associated with the ceremony. You have, this night, represented one of the greatest men that ever lived in the tragical catastrophe of his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, Hiram Babiff, the widow's son. Thus far in the story, Twain has resurrected Huck twice, and by the end of the novel, when Huck tells the reader that he will soon depart for Indian territory, Twain's hero anticipates a third and final rebirth away from or out of civilization. Now we come to the end of Twain's story and the question, why did Twain encode references to Freemasonry throughout Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? While the aforementioned references to Freemasonry in Huckleberry Finn might at first suggest that Twain was parodying aspects of Masonic ritual, I believe that he did have a specific agenda in mind. Indeed, only members of Masonic lodges or English professors with unusual interest in esoterica would recognize these symbols. Twain was sending a message of sorts to his former Masonic brethren. Writing his book at the end of the Reconstruction era, I suspect that Twain was suggesting to his former brother Masons that they recall the ideals emphasized in Masonic philosophy regarding universal brotherhood and put those ideals into practice. In theory, Freemasonry embraces the concept of universal brotherhood, yet brotherhood was what was missing, especially in the South at the time of Huckleberry Finn's publication. But while brotherhood was missing, hoods and masks and lynchings and burnings were not. Shortly after the end of the Civil War, one entered apprentice, Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, incorporated signs and symbols from the Masonic Grand Lodge into a new fraternity, a reference to which Twain makes in Chapter 22, as Colonel Sherburne refers to lynching and men coming at night and wearing their masks. Additionally, in 1875, the year before Twain began work on Huckleberry Finn, African-American Masons of the Prince Hall Lodge were experiencing more than usual prejudice from their white Masonic brothers. For example, the noted Masonic philosopher and Confederate general, Albert Pike, proclaimed, I took my obligation regarding universal brotherhood to white men, not Negroes. When I have to accept Negroes as brothers or leave Masonry, I shall leave it. During that same year, the Grand Master of Ohio called for the merging of the two Grand Lodges. Pike's view, however, may have been a reflection of the majority of Masons of the period. As a side note, the Prince Hall Lodge remains outside the Anglo-Masonic Lodge to this day. This paper, however, is not intended as a com commentary on the concept of Masonic Universal Brotherhood or lack thereof. Rather, Twain's book contains that commentary. Earlier I suggested that Twain used Tom Sawyer as a parody of the Grand Master of the Lodge. During the final chapter, Chapter of the Last, Tom gives Jim $40 for being prisoner so patient. While Twain uses the sum of $40 with regard to the Duke and Dauphin's selling of Jim to the Phelps, Huck has also given $40, two $20 gold pieces, in Chapter 16 by the Slave Hunters. It is the $40 given to both Huck and Jim that I want to draw attention to. For during the last part of the Entered Apprentice ritual, the initiate is asked for a coin or a small piece of metal, but having been previously divested of all metal, the initiate must ask a fellow mason for a coin. When the coin is given to the initiate, the initiation is all but complete. For a mason who has been following Twain's story up to this point, this action might be very significant. While not a satire of Freemasonry, Huckleberry Finn may have been intended as a message to former brothers, parodying the secret society that advocated what it amounted to limited universal brotherhood. 
Thus, Tom's gift of $40 can be viewed as more than a payoff, for it represents Jim's initiation into a new brotherhood, a brotherhood in a universal sense. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, there's a link in the show note to the article, which also has a lot of references to the material that was used to write this article. And so I'll state one more time, uh, there's a lot of references to ritual in here, but you have to remember Mark Twain was a member of the ancient Free and Accepted Masons, and in California we are Free and Accepted Masons. So the ritual is different. Many of the things that are said are different. Um, it's kind of like I say when you see a degree in another state or another country. It's a story you know. It's just different enough that it makes it a little more interesting. So again, hope you enjoy that, and uh, we'll see what we can come up with for the next round. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.